Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. What are you waiting for? This message will be a huge encouragement because the early disciples also had to wait for something very important, the Holy Spirit. This message will take a look at how the early disciples stayed faithful to God's word in a time of waiting. Enjoy the message. And we're going to take a look and we're going to journey through the simplicity of what God has for his church, specifically the first church, the New Testament church. Jesus Christ died, he rose from the dead, and then he gave specific commands to his people of what to do on this mission. Um, you know, I believe one of the, and he gave this mission, and he told them to wait. And I believe one of the hardest things to do in life is, wait for it, it's waiting, right? The hardest thing in life is to wait. And some of you, you, you say, I got this down, I can just wait all my whole life. And, you know, <laughs> oh, that, that's great, you know, they have the fruit of the spirit, you know, patience, right? But for, but for many of us, most of us, and myself included, waiting is a very hard thing to do. And we see this manifest in some funny ways, but in a situation that really serious and sometimes dangerous ways. Uh, for some of us, we've all been guilty of road rage, and there are some really epic YouTube videos on road rage, right? Uh, so anyway, we, we know the road rage. You, you, get in the ro- you get on the car, someone does something dumb, and you take out all your life's aggressions in that one moment, and that person in front of you or behind you. And <laughs> like I said, uh, I don't, try, don't watch the YouTube on my recommendation, but there's just some crazy road rage uh, people. But you know what's interesting? We've taken this up a notch. Road rage isn't just enough. Now we have what's called pedestrian rage. You know what I mean? So, so like whether you're at a mall or whether you're at... Um, uh, whether you're in an airport or you're at somewhere, maybe even downtown, uh, and, and it's just been crowded. And you always without fail, if you know where you're going, you want to get there quick. And you can always find somebody to walk in front of you and walk so slow, right? Like so slow. And the thing that drives me nuts is in airports, everybody's on a schedule. Everybody has to be somewhere. And I've been in an airport a lot this year. And for whatever reason, I always get stuck in front of the slow person on the escalator or on those movable walkways. I'm like, would you please move, right? You know, it's like, I got somewhere to go, okay? And so we all have somewhere to go. I don't think you're hanging out at the airport just for fun. And so, we, we, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just kind of frustrating when, when people are, 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 are just in front of you and not walking fast enough. And for some of you, you're like, you know what? When I find somebody that's standing in front of me, I look for my opportunity, my opportunity to get around that person and get going where I need to go. And this is where pedestrian rage kicks in. It's when you're standing behind somebody on the or you're walking in the hallways and you begin to think just nasty thoughts of that person in front of you. And then when you take that opportunity to get around that person, you mutter those nasty thoughts and then you cut them off right away. So if they're right behind you, you just cut them off. You just, you just show them, hey, you, you're slow, okay? It, it, it's kind of the same, you know, road rage, just pedestrian rage. But the, I think the latest rage is grocery store rage, okay? The grocery store line. You know, we've all been in a store where the line has been incredibly long, and I believe these five things go through our minds when we're waiting in the grocery store line. So the number one is this, whenever you get in a long grocery store line and you realize it's not going very fast, the first thing you think of is, I definitely chose the wrong line. And you'll begin to look at all the other lines and you'll be like, oh man, look at that, that one is going faster, this one is going so slow. And like for the next 15 minutes, if you're at Woodman's, the next 15 minutes, 
right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Next 15 minutes, you're just like, oh, I got in the wrong line, but if I get out now, I have to start this whole thing over again. You know, so like you're just, you're, you're, you're lamenting your bad decision. Uh, the second thing you think about when you're having grocery store rage is you begin to look at the other person's basket to see how much stuff is in there, and you begin to despise that person in front of you that they did too much shopping today. You know, you wait, oh man, how much toilet paper do they really need, you know? And then you realize, as you're looking at the other person's uh, shopping cart, that you have actually forgotten a key ingredient in one of your meals. And now you, for the next 15 minutes, you're going back and forth and you're saying, do I really need sugar for those cookies? Do I really need pasta for noodles? You know, so I mean, you begin to think and you begin to say, oh, maybe we could just eat the sauce, I don't know. The third thing is, is as you're mad, some of us, eat, when we get, we get angry, we get hangry. You know, we want it, that's being hungry when you're mad, right? And, and so, or mad because you're hungry, whatever. But the thing is, is for many of us, we're like, we just got to kill that feeling inside of us. So you look at the, at the strategically placed candy in the racks, and you're like, I'm going to buy this. I don't care. I deserve it, right? I deserve it. The fourth thing, and I know that you do this, you get so mad that your guard goes down and you begin reading all the headlines of the National Enquirer. I know it. I know you do. I know that's where you get your juice. Some of you are shaking your heads like, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the fifth thing is this, and this is the absolute worst, is you're standing in line. You finally get to the cashier and you realize you're at Woodman's. Woodman's doesn't accept credit cards and all and all's, and all's you have, uh, Woodman's only accepts debit cards and all you have is a credit card, right? So you're standing there and you're like, I don't have any money. I'm, I'm, one, I'm that person. Like, I'm standing in line. I forgot my debit card. And so you stand there and you plead with the cashier. Listen, this is a real story. You plead with the cashier. Will you please do something? Can you at least, I, I have to put all this back. And like, there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. So you leave, you leave the grocery store in a haste, committing pedestrian rage, getting in the car, committing road rage, to rush back to commit more grocery store rage, all because we can't wait, Right? Right? Waiting is a hard thing to do. In society, people buy things right now on credit instead of waiting to save. For those of you, maybe, maybe there's mothers in here, and, and whether you were pregnant in the past or you're currently pregnant, and you're just like, you get into those last months, and I don't know, I'm just going by what I hear, but you get in those last months, and you're like, would this thing just get out, okay? Like, you're just, you're, you're patient. You know, it's the only time you call your baby a thing, right? So, listen, if you have a short fuse, listen, this, this is the important thing. If you have a short fuse and you're impatient, listen up. Research is showing that when you're impatient, it actually damages your DNA. You know, I think the reason why we, we don't like to wait and we get impatient, we do things, we take shortcuts, is we think that somehow we're gonna be more productive, but in reality, we're being destructive. It's actually damaging our DNA, and the only thing patient speeds up is actually the aging process, no joke. So waiting is a hard thing to do, especially if you've been given something that is so valuable and so important. And this really leads us this morning where we're at in the book of Acts. It's the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you want to turn to your Bible there. Here's the thing. The disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, they were given this awesome mission that you have seen the resurrected Jesus. You are, you are going to be the ambassadors of this message until Jesus comes back again. You're going to go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to go, Lord, Locally. You're going to go to neighborhoods you like and you don't like. You're going to go all over the world and people are going to receive Jesus Christ as Savior because you are sending that message. And I know that some of these guys are like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Especially Peter. He wanted to walk on water. Now he wants to do this, right? They're like, yeah, let's do it. But he says, listen, here's the mission. 
first thing you have to wait. You're going to have to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. That is the power of God to come upon you. There's a lot of confusion today on that mission. You see, I, I imagine that if, if the disciples went right away in their own power and their mission, they may have started off well, but they would have ended badly. They would have run out of power, and often what I see happen is when people start focusing on the mission of Jesus, but they just kind of let it go, just kind of run its course, it becomes about them instead of God. And that, that probably would have happened with the disciples. But there's a lot of confusion in, in today in the church, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means for the mission of, what it means by the mission of God. Many people have bought into the toxic idea that it does not matter what you know about God through the Bible. And subsequently, there have been people that have said that they have followed Jesus for decades, when in reality, they haven't followed Jesus. On the flip side, I, I think what's harmed the church too is that there are a lot of people that know the Bible. They've read it through cover to cover and, and they, they could tell you all the different factoids of the Bible, but yet you look at the life and it has, they have not submitted their life to Jesus being their master. And again, uh, you, can, you can be on one or the other extreme and this is what we really want to push us towards as we go through Acts is that we would be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that we would learn how to live in right relationship with God and others. So as we journey through Acts, this is not just a Bible study where you might grab some new insight. You might grab some new insight, but the thing is this, we want to be a New Testament church that is radically obedient. I don't want to play church. Like that tires me out. You know, seriously, like I, I want to be a church that is radically obedient. And when you're radically obedient, here's the thing. Some of you are like, oh man, I can't cut the muscle. You don't know my life. You don't know I'm not perfect. That's great. All right. He takes broken people like us that say, Jesus, I just want to follow you. I want to receive what you have for me. And some days we take two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we take five steps backwards only to take one step forward. But the point is this, Jesus wants us to move forward this morning. So let's turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus uh, appeared after his resurrection. Uh, he gave them the mission to go make disciples, and then he went to heaven. But he says, before you go out, you need to wait for the power of God, that is the Holy Spirit, to come upon you. So Acts chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. Is that, here's what's interesting about our life, is that if we are going to understand what God has for us, our understanding of who God is needs to inform our practice. And that's, that's the axiom through this whole message this morning, is that understanding informs our practice. Understanding informs a practice. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that. Understanding informs a practice. Go. Awesome. What we understand about his word guides our living. And the first thing that God wants us to be understand and be informed about is that he cherishes our unity together. Uh, the unity. Unity means the, the, of one accord we see here in Scripture. Unity is the unity of hearts and minds towards the mission of reaching those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, reaching that next generation now. That's why we are so, uh, we're so explicit that we want to reach that next generation now so that next generation can reach the next generation and so on and so forth. You see that. If we, don't, if we are not committed to reaching the next generation now, then we will slowly fade off in a whimper. And I don't want to fade off in a whimper. I want it to be a bang when Jesus Christ 
Christ comes back that we see so many people that have come to know Jesus and have been changed and transformed uh, through him. So verse 12, again, we see they return to Jerusalem from that mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. As Jesus ascended into heaven, he commands his disciples again, you must wait. You must wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, he, he moved them from the Mount of Olivet where he was teaching them to where they are now going, to, taking that long ascent to Jerusalem, and they went to this place called the Upper Room. Uh, the Upper Room is a familiar place. Many believe this is the same room that Jesus had the Last Supper at, that right before he was betrayed and crucified. And now they're back in this Upper Room, and they are waiting they're waiting again before they're waiting in this tension of of jesus saying he's leaving this world and now they're waiting for the coming of the promise of the power of god the holy spirit what's interesting with the people that are waiting in this room we, we have a whole long list of names we have peter john james andrew philip thomas bartholomew matthew james the son of alphaeus simon the zealot judas the son of james we also see mary mother of jesus some other women and the brothers of jesus and what's interesting about the brothers of jesus is that they didn't, before the resurrection, they didn't believe that Jesus was God. They thought Jesus was actually kind of crazy. We see this in John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, I want you to place yourself, it was sometimes like, how dare Jesus' brothers not believe in him? Well, place yourself in their shoes, or well, maybe their sandals. Place yourself in, in, their, in, their, in their, where they stand for a moment. Here's the younger half-brothers of Jesus. You have James, you have Jude, and they see their older brother, Jesus, who was, was exemplary in everything, right? And he's like, oh, you could never do anything wrong. Then all of a sudden, Jesus starts doing these miracles. He starts making these statements. And they're like, what is this all about? The Bible says they didn't believe. In fact, when Jesus came home to the town he grew up in in Nazareth, Jesus came into the synagogue he opened the scroll to Isaiah, which if you, know, if you know much about Isaiah, Isaiah is an Old Testament book where it prophesies the coming of the Messiah. It prophesies the coming of Jesus. Jesus opens Isaiah, reads the prophecies, and he says, hey, you know what these are about? They're about me. <laughs> now, if he's in his hometown, you think maybe like, whoa, whoa, the Messiah's from, from Nazareth. That's wonderful. This is great. But instead, they said, you're crazy. They ran him out of town. And if you read scripture, not only did they run him out of town, they tried running him off a hill to kill him. And so Jesus' brothers not only were probably embarrassed by what Jesus was claiming, they remember the ruckus that happened in Nazareth. But yet we see here in the upper room that they are gathered together now as convinced. Now, how would his family be convinced? Well, later on in the New Testament, we're told that the brothers became convinced when Jesus resurrected and he appeared. And now, James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, really, they became pastors, in, 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 in a way to put it. James led the, the church in Jerusalem. And so here are guys that thought that denied the, the claims of Jesus, and now they are faithful followers. And we see Mary, too. I mean, I don't know about any mothers in this room, but if your son came to you, they went to college, came back saying, Mom, guess what? I'm perfect. <laughs> You'd be like, no, you're not, okay? But Mary was convinced. Mary's convinced that her son not only was perfect, he was God. So we see here, and, and there's 120 other people in this room, too. The first church that's going to be the church had 120 people. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now that, one, that word in scripture we see is one accord in the ESV. It means to be one mind. It means to have one passion. Together they were convinced. 
They were convinced of, of who Jesus is, who he was, and what his mission is all about. And his mission is to spread the good news of who Jesus is together. Remember, understanding informs how we practice. God wants us to understand and be informed with the necessity to be unified in our, in our minds, our passions for his purpose. And to make disciples, you know, listen, this is what his mission is, is to make disciples. Making disciples starts with placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of sins, and then response, live a life that's obedient to him. Jesus wants us unified. But all too often, churches make things about, they're about anything but the mission, or the mission is secondary. Uh, listen, here's, here's the thing about the church, uh, is that all too often in our experience, in, especially in the Western church that, that treats things democratically, uh, we let our desires, our way of doing things, be the main thing at the expense of the main thing. The main thing being knowing God and seeing exponential growth and seeing the next generation trust Christ. But too often the church can get sidetracked and be passionate about the wrong things at expense of the main thing. And I, I've heard it in my time in ministry, I've been in different contexts of ministries, I've heard people say, oh, I'm going to fight this, I have a fight in my bones for this thing. But listen, if your fight in your bones is, is, is on something other than the main thing, then you need to lose that fight. And you need to make sure that you keep your focus on his mission. And this is really important to Jesus. Our unity as a people, as God's church, is so vitally important. It, Jesus, actually, one of his last prayers before he was crucified, prayed this to the Father about our unity. He says this in John 17. This is Jesus speaking. Father, I pray that they, that is us, that is the church, would be one as we are one. Now, God's saying he is one. Now, remember this. We said this last week, that God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You'll hear those all the time here. And, and if you're new to the church, you might, sound, you might think that it sounds like three gods, but the Bible says we serve one God in three persons that are all equally God uh, all at one moment. And, and, and again, three, three persons, one God. We are finite. God is infinite. And I'm going to tell you, it is so encouraging to me that anytime I, when I just dig deep to know God more, it just makes me like, oh, wow, I can't, that just blows my mind. And so we could spend the next year on the Trinity and we can know more about the Trinity. We can understand the Trinity, the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. We can understand that uh, even more, but we won't understand it completely. And this is what I love about God is that you can never stop reading your Bible, never stop seeking him out and exhaust what you can know about God because he is infinite and we are finite. And that is beautiful, I think. That's absolutely beautiful. And so Jesus, who he himself is unified, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are unified in purposes. He says, as he is one, we are to be one together. We are to be one as a church with that singularity focus of his mission. Church is not about preference, about our programs, or about our pageantry. It is about the progress, the forward movement motion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why I rejoice that almost on a weekly basis, we see people say, yes, I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. Understanding informs our practice. God wants our unity. And as we are one accord, as we see in the Bible this morning, God wants us to pray. Verse 14, all these were with one accord, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Notice the gathering of, of this first church. There are one accord to pray. The thing is, is as we pray, how we see the world and how we operate and what gets us going 
falls away and we become passionate on saying, Father, I only want to do what I see you doing in heaven. Father, I only want to see what, I only want to do what you do. The disciples in the passage here, they know what they're supposed to do. And I don't know if you're a doer in here. Is anybody a doer in here? I know I am. I'm like, hey, I know the instructions. Let's go. Let's go. What are we waiting for? Why didn't we going yesterday? That's me. But God's saying, wait, wait and pray. Wait and talk to me first. Now, I'm not, now I know some people, they use prayer as an excuse. Hey, will you do this? Or hey, we're going to go out and share Jesus. Or hey, I'd like you to go on this mission trip. I'll pray about it. And when, in the church world, you know what that means? For those of you that aren't in church, when someone says they'll pray about it, that usually means no. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to say right now, don't ever misuse the word of prayer like that. Be honest with somebody. If you don't want to do something, say, no, I'm not going to do it. Don't say, I'll pray about it. If you're really going to pray about it, and that's fine, then say, I'll pray about it. But let's take away these, these like hidden lingos here, okay? Because here's the thing. When we say, I'll pray about it, and, we're not, and that just means no, we actually mean that prayer does, we're implying that you know, prayer is just this, this thing. Yeah, it's not really important. Prayer is actually very important. Uh, we, we are, before we go, whether, whether whatever we're doing, we need to pray. We need to say, God, fill us today. Fill us with, with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the sight of seeing what you, uh, what you see. God, fill us with the passion that you have. Faith-filled prayer leads to faith-filled living. So, how's our prayer life this morning? Is it just something we do before we eat? But by the way, that's really important. Some people aren't doing that. Is it something that we do just to start off a meeting, or is it something that we do to end church? We typically pray at the end of church, and that, 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 that's, that's great, but do we treat prayer just as a bookend, a bookend to go on to the next thing, or are we treating it as what it really is and what we should? And this is what prayer is. Prayer is talking. Listen to this. Prayer is the privilege that we're able to talk to the living God. Think about that. When we pray, we are actually talking to the God of the universe. When we pray, we're talking to the God who made this universe. Because of Jesus, when he died on the cross, the veil was torn. The Bible says that we can now have bold access to approach our God. And so when you are praying, you're not praying into the air. You're not praying hopeful thoughts. You're not praying so that you feel better. You're actually praying to the living God who's hearing you. Think about that. Isn't that encouraging you this morning? Uh, it, does that encourage you not to just treat prayer as a bookend or prayer as a, a prick, something to move into the next thing of, of, of life? Isn't it, doesn't it make you never want to use prayer as an excuse not to do something? Prayer is the privilege. We get to talk to the living God. Does that not just juice you up a little bit this morning? Does it? But you want to know why I think prayer has been made what it's been made today. We are all products of a secular culture. We are all products of, of a culture that has a secular mindset where God is not part of the equation. A secular mindset is, is a worldview that's bounded by solely the limits of this earth and this universe. And when we, and when we don't keep in check our secular mindset, when we, when we don't start our, 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 our starting point be that we believe in God and God can do anything, uh, we begin to move into a self-reliant attitude. And here in the West, I love this country. I think this country is the greatest country in the world. Um, but I'm going to tell you this right now. One of the, there's always a, a negative wherever you're at. And one of the negatives of living in a free Western society is that we can become very self-reliant. We can try to charge, or we can could, we could, we could think that we can control people, that we can control events. We can even be delusional and think that we can, we can control a future. 
That's what self-reliance is. And that seeps into the church when we think we don't really need God. Yes, we pray because we were told we need to. Yes, we, we, we go through the motions because we know that we would be, you know, that we, that's what we're supposed to do as a church. But a church, and we can all be guilty of this and all tempted to do this, that, it's, that moves in a self-reliant attitude, only relies on their good programs, their staffing, their budgets, you name it. And those things aren't bad things, but when we rely on those things at the expense of God, we will soon become bankrupt. We'll soon become delusional that we're doing the work of God when God has left the building years ago. And self-reliance moves to rationalism. Rationalism states if human reason can't explain something, then it must be rejected. And listen, we, that has seeped in the church so bad. We have, much in the church, we have a, 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 a rejection of the supernatural, that is why I believe for, to so many people, God seems dead in their personal life. Or to so many churches, God seems so distant. Here's the thing. The reason why it is a novel idea that we are actually talking to the living God who talks to us. Listen, prayer is a miracle. That's a miracle, wouldn't you say? That, that we can talk to the living God, but our secular culture and mindset that's invading our minds, we just, it just becomes this thing that we were taught. It's not something that we've experienced or, 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 or our, our, our secular mindset wars against when we think we should experience it. We need to sweep out the anti-natural, the anti-supernatural mindset that comes from the secular mindset, and we need to embrace being naturally supernatural people. We need to be naturally supernatural we can't rely just on our natural or else prayer will seem like we're wasting our time instead of being our lifeline. Prayer is a miracle. And one of the greatest misconceptions with prayer is that we're gonna, when we go to God, we're going to beg him and change his mind. Listen, God says that we don't receive because we don't ask. I, I, I affirm that. But you know what I think the primary purpose of prayer is? It's to change us. It's to change our perspective. It's, it's to change our heart. It's for us to realize that God could actually work through us supernaturally to accomplish what he wants to accomplish through us. The disciples, before they launched into this world mission Jesus gave them, waited patiently until the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit, and they prayed together. And listen, if you're in a waiting period right now in life, I don't know what you're waiting for, but all of us wait for something, and it's, this is the moment that you can wait for God to move through you in ways you never thought capable, or this could be the moment that you compromise and you give in to shortcuts. Understanding informs our practice. God wants us to understand and be informed about the importance of prayer. And next, God wants, to, God wants us to understand and be informed about the importance of the Bible. The Bible is so very important. Oh, there goes something. The Bible is so very important. It is the supreme core of understanding God's will for our life. If, if we want to know God's will, we need to be in his word. And so when we're never in his word, we are guessing or you're relying on secondhand knowledge or a good Christian author. I want you to go to the author. This is the word. This is the supreme court of faith in practice. And theology really informs our practice. The Bible informs our practice. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. So they're praying... And finally, when they're praying, verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers. The company of persons was in about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. There was probably great confusion. First off, Peter was a, he was a coward oftentimes in the, in the gospels. But now Peter is standing up to encourage these 120 people. 
And there had to be great confusion because there were, uh, there were 12 disciples, but now there are only 11 because on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, Judas betrayed Jesus. And when Judas realized what he did to Jesus when he betrayed them into the hands of, 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 the, religious, uh, of, of, of the Jewish people and, and the Romans, uh, Judas felt so much remorse, maybe selfish remorse, but so much so that he went and he killed himself. He killed himself in a very graphic way. And so the disciples, uh, I, I think, are still reeling with the loss of a friend, but also loss of, of a friend who betrayed them and then died. And so they go to this point and they say, what should we do? Should we replace this fallen dis, this disciple to go into the world, or should we just have 11? You know, what could have happened right here is what happens to many believers today, is they could have gone into a fruitless discussion, gotten 120 different opinions, and they could have divided up and said, we're going to have this faction over here, we have the uh, Matthias faction here, we have the Joe faction right here, and we have the Justice faction over here. I'm like, we are Justice, we are Joe, we are Matthias. It's like, okay, so this is what we're going to have to do. I, I know the Bible says that we need to have 12 disciples, but we don't want to make anybody mad, so now we're going to have 14 disciples. How's that sound? Oh, it sounds good, yes. No, that's not what he did. He appealed to Scripture. And that's what we have to do, too, as God's people. We have to be people that appeal to God's Word. We have to be people that, first and foremost, what does God say in this situation? When we don't understand something, what does God say about it? What has he already said about it? The Bible's not a work of man, as some have leveled, but rather we see in verse 16, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And that's interesting. It, gives us, it really gives us a clear description of how God gave us his word. In fact, Peter, later in one of his letters, explains it further in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening. Is the Holy Spirit spoke through men over a course of, 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 of over a thousand years on different continents before there, was, before there was technology, you've, you've heard me talk, if you've been here before, you, you may have heard me say this before, but here's the thing. The Bible is the most accurate ancient document on the planet, period. Now, some people are like, no, it's not. It's full of corruptions. It's full of this or that. And I'm like, okay, do your research, because I heard that too, and I did my research, and I became even more convinced. There are over 10,000 manuscripts that back up the message we have today, of which you can go to museums around the world, buy a plane ticket, go around the world, it's going to cost you a lot, but go around the world and learn Greek and Hebrew while you're at it, and then translate the manuscripts so you can see with your very eyes in those museums, and you'll find that the Word of God that we have today is accurate to the manuscripts that we have, the 10,000 and such. Some people are like, I'm still not convinced. Well, the thing is, the, the second leading ancient document, Homer's Iliad, has some 643 manuscripts, and we don't usually challenge that. What I'm saying is, is that Here's the thing. If we are naturally supernatural, it is not out of the realm. It's not ridiculous that God would uphold his word. He said he'd uphold his word. The Bible is full of promise. The Bible is full of promise from, from cover to cover. Some of these promises were, were fulfilled. Some of these promises we are waiting for fulfillment. Jesus says he's going to come back. He's going to make all things new. He's going to wipe away tears. Death's going to be swallowed up. There'll be pain no more. I cannot wait for that day. But we know that things have been fulfilled. Jesus Christ came, which was a prophecy that, that was spoken beforehand. That was fulfilled. There are so many promises that we can say, I am going to take God at his word. And if God is who he says he is, he can, of course, uphold his word. And he will uphold his word. But you know what's interesting? I think, and I'll coin a phrase that Josh McDowell said, you do not have to commit intellectual suicide to say that this is God's word. 
And that's why I shared with you the manuscripts. That's why you can dig deeper, and in, in, we've had previous uh, uh, sessions on this, of why you can trust God's word. So anything that tries to undermine scripture as just another human work, any opposition that tries to say certain issues in the Bible, the Bible addresses it wrong, that is demonic in nature. Now, we may have thought that, we may have even said that, but we need to know that that thought or that feeling isn't from God. That thought and feeling is actually from the enemy who does not want you to take in what God has to say for your life. We have to trust God. And sometimes with so many conflicting opinions, and today we, are, we have so many opinions that are accessible at our fingertips at any given moment, we need to understand that those things are not on the same level of authority as God's word, and we need to trust God's word in the fog. And that's exactly what Peter did. Paul writes later on in Colossians 2.8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental practices and spirits of the world that are not according to Christ. The Bible's main purpose, it is a love letter to us. How to be in right relationship with God, how to be in right relationship with others. It also deals with moral issues. It deals with how we deal with money, how we deal with relationships, uh, uh, how to make wise decisions, etc. But this book is not like a book of morality. This isn't like, okay, we need to figure out how to live the right in, in this life. Yes, it does deal with that, but the main point is how to be in right relationship with God. If you're trying to do all these good things, but you're not in right relationship with God, you got it backwards. Peter appeals the scripture on how to replace Judas, and we see this in Acts 1, 17 through 20. And he goes into this really graphic detail of what happened to Judas. And uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'll let you read that on your own time, okay? All right? Okay, but let's go to 20, verse 20. Peter says this. He appeals the scripture in, in prophecies written in Psalms. He says, for it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these scriptures and psalms are being fulfilled. Peter appealed to the Bible on how to better understand what to do next. And an important question, I'm going to pause here for a second. An important question as we go through the book of Acts is going to be, is how do we interpret Acts in today's century, in today's millennium, for that matter? How are we to do this? This is a history book, per se, Right? So we see a historical record, but how are we to pull the prescription for our life today in this? And what people do errantly is they say, well, you know, this is a narrative. This is historical and it's descriptive. And so what's descriptive isn't prescriptive. And I'm like, eh, wrong. You'd throw all the gospels out if you did that. When you're reading, the Bible is written of poetry, of narrative, of prophecy, of letters, of commands. Listen, Here's the thing, no matter what we are reading, we need to understand God is speaking to us and what is, what applies to our church today. And listen, here's the thing, if you ever have a question, the Bible is a, is a total document. And so if, you, if, if we see today that, uh, for instance, that we are to watch what comes out of our mouth, what does God's total word say about that? And, and that's, that's called having a theology of that understanding. And so that's really important and that's what we'll do. Understanding informs our practice. By the way, we're going to need to understand that. that this, the book of Acts, although it's historical, it is for us today. God wants us to know, learn how to do church politics. Eh, wrong. Across politics out. See, that's how a lot of churches run, is they run through a very political prism. We want to know how to do church through what God has told us to do and be obedient to that. And so we see in Acts 1, 21 through 26, 
Peter is now applying what Scripture has said into their situation. And so this is what he said. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went to and among us, being from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us witness to his resurrection. So there's two requirements here. They're going to replace him. He needs to be a man who it was a witness. A man who was a witness. Verse 23, and they put forward two. Joseph called Barabbas, who's also called Justice. He has three names, so that's great. And Matthias. All right, so they're looking in the rooms like, okay, who meets this criteria? Okay, we got Justice right there, and we have Matthias right there. And they have, they're equally two good options, right? And so instead of going to a vote and like saying, oh, pick me for the next apostle, they did something very unique here. They actually, it's called right here, they rolled uh, dice, or what it's called the casting of lots. Really? They chose this guy by a, a rolling of dice, I believe for two reasons. Number one, is they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. And listen, without the Holy Spirit, you're lost, right? And, and, and how do you, if you want to feel like being lost spiritually without the Holy Spirit, um, many of us, we need to ask for him to fill us. That means control us. And so when we feel lost or God's distant, that's how they're still feeling. And they can't have the Holy Spirit because he hasn't come. So they're, they're rolling dice. But, but often in life, when we have two equally good options, we do end up rolling the proverbial dice, don't we? We do end up going with a decision. We might make, we might, okay, we might weigh the pros and cons. But if there are two equally good options, we end up picking one, right? Anyway, but they rolled the dice. And we see this as a practice that was a carryover from the Old Testament. But this is the last time that we see this. And I do believe it's because the Holy Spirit comes and we don't have to rely on that. Okay? So Peter appealed to the Bible and we see them picking a man and it runs down to Matthias. Matthias is the next apostle. Now here's the thing. I want us to understand in the church. It's not about what we want for the church. It's not about our democratic process in the church. It's about, God, what is your mission, and how can we stand and be obedient to that mission no matter the cost, no matter what? And if we were to reduce the church, if we were to peel off all our programs and everything that we do, what makes a church a church? What makes a church is this, that we are a people of the word, that we preach the gospel, and that we are a community committed to meeting together, building each other up in Jesus, so that others may know Jesus. That is the church. And that's very simple. And we, sometimes we complicate this. And when we put on, and I'm not saying that other programs, other things that we do are bad or wrong. They're often good. But those are where people go to war. They go to war over the color of the frosting instead of the nucleus of what, of what the cake, of what you baked, what God, what God has given us. And so it's just absolutely amazing what happened in the early church. But we need to understand this is not just a history book but it's his story running through you. We are a continuation of this first church. We live in the New Testament era, and we are to live naturally supernatural lives so that Jesus Christ is honored and that he is known throughout this whole world. The greatest miracle, I believe, is somebody who passes from death into life. They don't know Jesus, they're spiritually dead, and they're made alive. So here's four things. Now what? Here's four things I want us to look at this week. Number one is, consider your prayer life. Are you treating God more like a genie, more like your servant, or are you being changed by him? All right? Do you re remember, you're actually talking to, a li to the living God of the universe. Number two, is the Bible informing your life? If you've learned from the Bible, how is it informing your life? How is it informing your practice in life? Number three is, do you approach God with a humanistic mindset 
or a supernatural mindset. This is huge. This is really big. I'm guilty of, of approaching situations in my own strength, a humanistic, secular mindset. I want to be able to approach things where I go to God in prayer, like, God, I need your words. I need, I need your direction in this moment. So what is it? I just want us to take time now and respond to God. Because we're, 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 we're going up, if we're on a roller coaster, we're still going up that hill. And we know the, the adventure is ready to begin as we look at the faith of the first church, the faith, I hope, transfers into our church as well. So, Father, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would do a work in this church to draw us closer to your Son. There are many of you out there that you, you, you might admit today, you, you might say, you know what, I do believe in God, but I don't think I really know him. Some of you might say, I believe in God, but I don't know him well. And others of you, I believe in him, but I want to know him intimately and serve him wholeheartedly. Wherever you are, it is my prayer that you'd want to take a step closer to him and grow in him. And so God, I pray that we would never serve you out of obligation, but we would always long to serve you out of relationship. Well, when we impact God's word, we don't want to just be somebody who knows the word. We want to know the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know Jesus just by knowing things about him. You need to know him personally. Do you have a relationship with Almighty God? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, he created you to have a relationship with him. Did you know that? He, you were wonderfully and fearfully made in your mother's womb. You were created to know God. The problem is we've sinned. We've done something wrong in our past, in our present, and undoubtedly in our future. And that sin separates us from Almighty God. You see, God requires perfection in heaven. And not one of us, including you, including myself, we're not perfect. And so sin separates us from Almighty God. And what people try to do is they try to get to God by religion. They try to get to God by doing good works or to prove themselves. But none of these things will get us to God. In fact, our righteousness is but filthy rags, is what Scripture says. And so it requires a miraculous, uh, a, a miraculous happening. And that miraculous happening is this. It's not ourselves. It's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, God came 2,000 years ago as the God-man, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place to take the punishment of our sin, to take on God's wrath. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He stood in your place, and God saw your sin upon Christ. And Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came upon Christ. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. Jesus Christ died for you. But because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection demands now our response. And the question is this, have you placed your full faith in Jesus Christ? Upon Jesus Christ, what he did for you. The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ was risen from the dead, you will be saved. All those who cry out in the name of the Lord will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, that means die spiritually, but have everlasting life. Have you personally placed your faith and trust in Jesus? If you're not sure or you know you haven't, Right now is the time. You might think like, well, let me get things figured out first. No, let's, today's the day of your salvation, Scripture says. That means that you come as you are 
But Christ doesn't leave you as you are. He takes you where he is going. So why don't you just pray with me right now? Why why don't you consider Jesus? Why don't you place your faith and trust in Jesus right now? Uh, This prayer that I'm about to pray isn't gonna save you. It's Christ who's already saved you. I'm just helping you communicate to God. So if you wanna place your faith and trust with Jesus right now, will you just pray along with me? Just say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned and I realize I need a savior. So Lord Jesus, will, uh, will you save me? I place my full faith and trust upon you. Thank you for dying on the cross, saving me from my sins. Thank you for raising from the dead. Help me follow you now. I trust you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, the Bible says you have become a son or daughter of the king. You have been forgiven of your sins. And know this, that once you are held in the grip of God, Nothing can pluck you from his hand. Also know this, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, there's a party in heaven happening right now. Uh, When just one person gives their life to Jesus, the angels rejoice in heaven. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.